Welcome, everybody, to yet another episode of the Wrestling vs. the World podcast. If you're enjoying your day, sweet. If not, what the hell ever. Uh, yeah, you guys can tell this is not going to be an easy subject matter. By the time I'm recording this, this is just a few days after the Wrestling World lost Windomotunda, or Rotunda, sorry. And I thought, you know, what would be a better way to honor his legacy than to go over his entire WWE career? Because this man had been involved with WWE some on and off period for the last 14 years. To think, this guy is a homegrown talent within World Wrestling Entertainment. So I'm going to cover everything that I can. Uh, I'm not going to have a whole lot to talk about in terms of his developmental time. Like with FCW slash NXT. Because I haven't seen a whole lot of it just yet. But I'll do my best to cover what I can. And also talk about his stuff as Husky Harris. And his other personas starting from Bray Wyatt onward. So... Yeah, I'm gonna. It's gonna be a lot long episode, but you know what? I'm gonna do my best to give him justice. So, according to Wikipedia and some video footage, this man started when Rotana started in Florida Championship Wrestling, that being WWE's developmental system. And within a couple months of his in-ring debut, he del- debuted on television, known under the name of Alex Rotundo, later changing it to Duke Rotundo. And he would also form a tag team with his real-life brother Bo Dallas. K.K. Borotondo, and at one point for a four-month period, they were actually FCW Tag Team Champions together. Nice little fun thing there when you can team up with your brother and become champions. Well, the first mainstream exposure that we would get from Mr. Rotondo, not Bo, referring to Wyndham Rotondo, would be in June 2010 when he would be rebranded as Husky Harris when he took part in NXT's second season, this being when NXT was more of a game show slash reality show hybrid to determine who was going to be the next WWE superstar to come up to the main roster. Back then, you would be uh, teamed up with a pro. He was teamed up with Cody Rhodes at this point. Well, Harris would have nine televised matches on NXT and would only win four out of the nine. Some of them would, a lot of them would be tag team matches. And he would end up fin- finishing in fourth place out of everybody on the NXT roster there. Just behind Alex Riley, Michael McGillicuddy, and the eventual winner, Caval, who you may know better elsewhere as Loki. So after NXT had its run there for the second season, Harris would return FCW for a few more months, feuding with Percy Watson. Yeah, another NXT Season 2 participant. Now after a few months, he would Harris would return to the main roster and would get involved with Michael McGillicuddy at Hell in a Cell 2010 to help Wade Barrett defeat John Cena. And because of that pre-match stipulation, Cena would be forced to join the Nexus. And not too long after that, both McGillicuddy and Harris would be added to the Nexus as well and would stay with the faction even after CM Punk kicked Wade Barrett out of the group and replaced him as the new leader. Unfortunately, Harris's time with the new Nexus would only last a few months because in January 2011, he would be written off television after being punted in the head by Randy Orton and sent right back to Florida Championship Wrestling. So that was essentially the end of the Husky Harris character. Now, I mean, like, it, Harris in NXT, I think, or, sorry, part of the Nexus was kind of nice, you know, big muscle guy. The problem is that his character just had no other purpose. You know, he, we don't, didn't know his backstory. There wasn't showing anything to be unique about him. He was just there, you know. So after Rotunda was sent back to NXT slash F, well, FCW at the time later NXT, he would try to repackage himself under the Axel Mulligan character, which was kind of like the spooky character with the mask on. But this never came to television, and I know there have been some photos and video footage 
surrounding coming up on the internet that have shown that character. But like I said, never came to television. He would just remain under the Husky Harris moniker. But then things would take a massive change because in April 2012, we got the debut of Bray Wyatt. And a bit of a fun fact, I know we got, some of y'all have seen some of those video packages from the early days. He was actually originally aligned with Eli Conwood, who was also in NXT season second, uh, second season. You know, probably remember best is the guy who cut a promo about mustaches. <laughs> but then this would get changed as time went along. Then as FCW dissolved and became NXT, as the new developmental system for WWE, we started to get the formation in NXT of the Wyatt family with Luke Harper and Eric Rowan. Now, unfortunately, Tragedy would, would already strike for Wyatt because after uh, FCW came NXT, he would suffer a pectoral muscle injury, so he would be sidelined for a pretty great deal of time. But in the meantime, his Wyatt family cohorts, Luke Harper and Eric Rowan, would end up having a two-month run as NXT Tag Team Champions just before the all members of the Wyatt family would get called up to the main roster. Yeah, I know I kind of skimmed over a little bit. Like I said, I'm not really familiar with the developmental stuff just yet. Now you get to the main roster. This is where everything picks up. Because starting from late May, going into the beginning of July, we would start getting these vignettes hyping up the debut of the Wyatt family. You want to see something really scary? So to the best way to really describe this iteration of Bray Wyatt, it's like, aka the Eater of Worlds, would be this kind of spooky cult leader. Because his member, his Luke Harper and Eric Rowan, the members of his Wyatt family, would be referred to as his family despite not sharing the same surname. So, definitely a creepy, like, cult leader. Pretty much kind of like the whole creepiness inspired by the Wayland Mercy character, which you probably only best remember if you watch wrestling, the WWF back in 95. I know, not a best period. And the group would, well, after some time with the vignettes, the group would debut together on the July 8, 2013 episode of Raw by targeting Kane... And would also, as time went along, start attacking others, just trying to fix the company. Kane with Bray Wyatt would end up having their first match together at SummerSlam in a Ring of Fire match. Just being in this feud, this is essentially an Inferno match, but only ends via pinfall or submission, so you don't have to light the other person on fire. And this was just a concept done to make sure that the rest of the Wyatt family did not interfere on Wyatt's behalf. That proved to be futile because after Eric Rowan and Luke Harper tried many times to get into the ring, they grabbed a fire blanket, covered the the pyro the whatever that fixture is over on the side of the ring that spots out the fire. I can't remember the exact name of it. Covered it up, got into the ring, interfered, and helped Bray Wyatt defeat Kane in this one-on-one encounter. Now after this, Wyatt would defeat Kofi Kingston a couple months later at Battleground, becoming another target. And I've covered the Kofi run in 2013. And that's fun there. And then they would set their sights on both CM Punk and primarily Daniel Bryan. And after the Wyatt family failed to defeat Daniel Bryan and CM Punk in a tag team match of Survivor Series, all three members would then f solely set their sights on Daniel Bryan, would defeat him in a three-on-one handicap match at TLC. And a couple weeks later, Daniel Bryan, tired of getting attacked by the Wyatt family, would surrender himself to them and join the Wyatt family at the end of the month, at the end of December 2013. And this alliance would end up only lasting two weeks. Because a couple weeks into the beginning of 2013, after the tag team loss where the Usos defeated Daniel Bryan and Bray Wyatt in a tag team steel cage match, Daniel set himself free from the Wyatt family by beating the living daylights out of Bray Wyatt and keeping the rest of the Wyatt family out from trying to save him. I know, pretty great moment there for 
the ending of Raw. And then both men, Daniel Bryan and Bray Wyatt, would score off one-on-one -on -one at the Royal Rumble, and Wyatt would defeat Daniel Bryan in possibly his greatest singles match of all time. Definitely a great match after he hit Sister Abigail to Daniel Bryan into the barricade, brought him to the ring, another Sister Abigail got the win there, and that pretty much put an end to that one-on-one -on -one feud. Now, their night was not done yet for the Wyatt family, because before the end of the night, the family would end up getting involved in the John Cena-Randy Orton WWE World Heavyweight Championship match and cost Cena his championship match there for that evening. And kind of a bright point, because we've seen Cena Orton enough. Now, they wouldn't fully get invested in John Cena just yet, because we would get a major thing here after this, because in the build to the Elimination Chamber, we would get the big square-off between the Shield and the Wyatt family, the two hottest factions in the WWE at that point. Both teams would clash at the Elimination Chamber, and the Wyatt family would emerge victorious in possibly the greatest six-man tag match in wrestling history. I'm sure there are some others that might say something with companies in New Japan or AEW. From what I've seen so far, this is the best overall six-man tag match ever. The action was incredible. The crowd was white-hot. You could not anticipate this more. Then, I mentioned John Cena earlier, but then they set their sights on Cena again. Because during the Elimination Chamber match for the WWE World Heavyweight Championship, the White Family got involved and cost Cena his time in the match, so Cena was on the radar. And this now we would get full-on motivation as to why Bray Wyatt and the White Family would target Cena. It's because Wyatt feels like he could see through Cena's heroic act and want to expose him as a fraud by making him feel into his dark side. So it felt like embrace the hate, but better. So these men would actually go... These, the build to their match for WrestleMania 30 was fucking great. Cena at one point, I think it was either this match or one of their later matches, he pretended to be a member of the Wyatt family with like the mask and the outfit and everything just to try to get a sneak up advantage on them. Which was like an absolutely great moment. Then both of these men would go in a one-on-one -on -one match at WrestleMania 30, and Cena was at one point tempted to hit Wyatt with the steel chair. Because Wyatt was just on his knees like, Come on! Snap! Get into your dark feelings! But it didn't work, and Cena would still defeat Bray Wyatt to give Wyatt his first singles loss on the main roster. And this would end up being a controversial booking decision, but we'll get back to that about in six years into the timeline. Now, despite losing this match, Wyatt would get his win back at Extreme Rules in a steel cage match. Cena was trying to escape the cage, and he would get stopped by this child in a choir outfit, singing he's got the whole world in his hands in a demonic voice. Cena spooked, got back in the ring, walked into Sister Abigail, and Bray would get the victory. Then, this blow-off of the feud would happen in the next pay-per-view at Payback, as Cena would defeat Bray Wyatt in the last man standing match by covering him in heavy equipment cases. Yeah, not a fun thing. This would be a recurring trend you would see with John Cena and these monstrous slash dark type of heel characters. You would just completely destroy their mystique here. So, now, now that this whole feud with Cena is over for the next six years, why would unsuccessfully compete in a ladder match at Money in the Bank for the vacant WWE World Heavyweight Championship, a championship that was vacated by Daniel Bryan, and then he would set his sights for Chris Jericho. Rather peculiar there. So Jericho and why would go one on one at Battleground, and Jericho would get the win. And I know a lot of people debate this of Jericho winning. I see it being a bad thing that he won and a good thing. A good thing because at that time Jericho's putting everybody over, so Jericho had to at least have some wins to make an eventual win over him credible. Because I know he's credible by name recognition, but in terms of booking wise, 
he had to get some kind of victory, but also why I could use the victories more because he was the more up-and-coming talent. And Bray would get a win the rematch at SummerSlam, so he gained the win on a actual proper pay-per-view rather than a B pay-per-view like Battleground. And then would also win the rematch on the September 8, 2014 episode of Raw when they fought in a steel cage match. Match you probably best remember from Jericho diving off the top of the cage to Wyatt. Maybe. Well, after this, this was when things started taking a turn because Wyatt would disappear from television and disband the Wyatt family by setting them free. And we would not see Bray Wyatt again on television until Hell in a Cell when he would get involved in the main event between Dean Ambrose and Seth Rollins by having his lantern appear in the ring, hologram spooking him out with fog and smoke and all that stuff, get in the ring, drop Ambrose with the Uranagi, and Seth would get the win. So this would start a feud between Bray Wyatt and Dean Ambrose for the next couple of months. So Wyatt would defeat Dean Ambrose via disqualification at Survivor Series because he would get Wyatt to attack, or Ambrose to attack him with the steel chair. And then post-match, Ambrose would just get bar or would bury Bray Wyatt with a ton of weapons. And of course, in commentary, oh, Ambrose just buried Bray Wyatt. Like, you don't want to use that terminology when you got fans and smarts listening on commentary to your headset. So then these two would compete in a TLC match the next month at TLC, and F Ambrose would actually lose this one completely to Wyatt because Ambrose tried to take a monitor out from underneath the ring, did not disconnect the cables, kept pulling, boom, explosion in his face, Sister Abigail, Wyatt wins. Now, before we talk about the next part of the mat, the feud, I to conclude this feud up and everything, I wanted to give like a personal insight because uh, I do remember two days after the pay-per-view, I went to SmackDown, December 16, 2014, and I'll talk more about this when I discuss my WWE show experience in a future episode. Uh, that episode of SmackDown was actually a live one on Tuesday. They were getting ready to do SmackDown on Thursdays coming up, but this was SmackDown 800, so they did a special live episode. And Ambrose and Wyatt cut a promo together, and post-show, they actually had a dark match together. So, this was my only WWE experience, I can say, I get to see Bray Wyatt wrestling a match. Went one-on-one with Ambrose after SmackDown, Wyatt got himself disqualified by using a Singapore can on Ambrose, and Ambrose soon got it back, wailed on Wyatt a few times, and sent him to, to retreat. And the thing with the promo that he cut on TV, I remember everybody was doing the lights on their cell phones for the wife, the Firefly part in the audience, and some kid out in the front row was, or closer to the ringside was actually lighting up uh, Nintendo 3DS because he didn't have a cell phone there within the darkness. That was kind of a little bit funny. So now back to the feud. Uh, Wyatt would also defeat Dean Ambrose in a miracle on 34th Street for the Christmas edition of Raw on December 22nd, 2014, and then defeat him in the ambulance match on the January 5th, 2015 episode of Raw to end the rivalry. So... Wyatt in this feud completely decimated Dean Ambrose in terms of who was winning these matches. So, after this, Bray would end up taking part in the 2015 Royal Rumble match, entered in number 5 and lasted almost 47 minutes in the match itself with 6 eliminations, but then would be knocked out and slowly eliminated by both Kane and The Big Show. One of the worst booked Royal Rumble matches, if not the worst, ever. I think we can all agree on that. So then Wyatt... Next massive highlight, his next feud would be against The Undertaker. He would call him out repeatedly through promos in the build of WrestleMania 31 and declare himself to be the new face of fear. And you gotta really give props to Bray. He carried the entire build to this feud all on his own because Undertaker never appeared on television 
in the build to the WrestleMania match because he hadn't been seen since he lost WrestleMania 30. So major props to Bray for getting everybody invested in this. And despite carrying this feud on its own, and I believe he suffered a bit of an injury getting prepared for this match, Bray would unfortunately would lose to The Undertaker. And I think a lot of people agree that maybe Bray should have won this match. I think so too because at this point it didn't matter if Undertaker lost because the streak was over. Well, after WrestleMania, Bray would engage in a brief feud with Ryback, defeating him at Payback. No clue, don't remember why they feuded to begin with, especially for something so brief. Now, the following month, they had Money in the Bank. You had the Money in the Bank ladder match, and Bray Wyatt would get involved to cost Roman Reigns the victory. This would end up being later won by Seth Rollins. And I believe, that if members of the right, people were saying that Bray was targeting Roman because you feel like Roman should not be the guy. And, I mean, could have been anybody but you. I'm spooky. So this wouldn't bring up a feud between Bray Wyatt and Roman Reigns. And as time went along, we saw the reformation of the Wyatt family. Because at Battleground, Bray would defeat Roman Reigns thanks to the returning Luke Harper. In, like, assisting Bray in the victory over here. So like I said, now the Wyatt family start to reform. And Eric Rowan wouldn't immediately rejoin the uh, faction during this point because he was still out due to injury. And we would also get a tag match involving Bray and the Luke Harper now reforming. But they would fail to defeat Dean Ambrose and Roman Reigns in a tag match at SummerSlam. Not the most memorable match. But the next night. Oh boy. After SummerSlam, we would see the debut of Braun Strowman. And I know some people might say, Oh, what? he didn't debut. He was part of the Rosebuds and everything with Adam Rose. In terms of this known, like, established right here in your face character... This is the debut of the Braun Strowman character here, okay? Please, let's not argue about this. And I don't want to remember the Rosebuds. But Braun would debut on the main roster the following night after SummerSlam as the Black Sheep of the Wyatt Family. And I remember seeing this live on television. When he appeared right there in the ring before he even took his mask off, I was like, whoa, who the hell is this? So an impressive debut. And at Night of Champions, we would say six-man tag match. Bray Wyatt, Luke Harper, and Braun Strowman against Roman Reigns, Dean Ambrose, and a mystery tag partner. And I don't mean the mystery tag partner being the guy in the shield vest that jumped into the ring and got ejected from by security. But it would be the returning Chris Jericho, but the Wyatt family there would end up getting tag team victory. Now in the next up, Roman would and Bray would resume their one-on-one -on -one feud going in Hell in a Cell. And right before Hell in a Cell, Eric Rowan would finally return from injury. And now the Wyatt family would be a family of four. So, now we finally get to Roman and Bray. Hell in a Cell match at Hell in a Cell... Roman gets the win. Not fun. But just like we saw at uh, uh, Royal Rumble and Elimination Chamber 2014, just because Bray lost the match and everything doesn't mean that the, their night was over because the main event of that night being Brock versus The Undertaker inside Hell in a Cell to conclude that feud, the Wyatt family would attack The Undertaker. And then after this, they would also attack Kane in order to set up this whole big tag match for the 25th anniversary of The Undertaker's debut at Survivor Series. And unfortunately for the Wyatt family, they lost. And I know I have nothing respect for, but respect for Undertaker and Kane, but these, guys, these men were getting older, part-time schedules. I think the Wyatt family could have benefited more from this tag match victory. Well, then the entire Wyatt family also would end up going against ECW Originals because some ECW Original guys were appearing on Raw, and the Wyatt, entire Wyatt family would defeat... Team ECW at the TLC pay-per-view in 2015 in an 8-man tag team elimination tables match. Well, that's right, ECW got wood. 
then you get the the Royal Rumble match in 2016. White Family would end up eliminating Brock Lesnar from the match in order to start building up a, an eventual match between Brock and uh, Bray Wyatt. And this would, I mentioned this in the three-part series of matches being changed due to the subject to change. Bray Wyatt and Brock were supposed to have gone one-on-one -on -one at Roadblock, but Bray got injured in the build to the match, so it ended up being impromptu, an impromptu handicap match, which included Luke Harper and Brock still won anyway. So, yeah. Now, the next notable thing you probably remember with Bray and the entire Wyatt family would be at WrestleMania 32, when the entire family would confront The Rock. And out of nowhere, The Rock would win an impromptu match in six seconds from Eric Rowan, with just a rock bottom, and then John Cena, who was still not medically cleared to compete due to a uh, torn rotator cuff, would come out to assist The Rock and would fight off the Wyatt family. So I don't know if that counts as a WrestleMania moment. But then the next night, a moment people probably remember just because of how short-lived it was, the Wyatt family would seemingly start a face turn by attacking the League of Nations. And I believe this was right after they kicked uh, Bad News Barrett out of the faction, so be more of just Rusev, Alberto Del Rio, and Sheamus... And I believe it was like the week after was that whole moment that we all remember now where Bray hit Sister Abigail on, I think it was Alberto Del Rio, then would point off screen where Roman would then spear Sheamus who was just trying to get involved. Great moment there. Unfortunately, we would never get any clarification for why this face turn was happening because right after that tag match that I just mentioned, Bray would suffer a calf injury at a house show, so he would be right back on the injured list. And this whole feud would end up being completely scrapped. The New Day would, or sorry, the White family would return to television a couple months later and would be right back to being heels by targeting the New Day. New Day rocks. Hard to believe this fact, that faction is still going to this day, even though it's still not known about Big E. But we would get a tag match at Battleground. White family would defeat the New Day. Nice move there. The faction would then be partially split up during the 2016 draft. Because Braun Strowman would be drafted to Raw, Bray Wyatt and Eric Rowan would directly be drafted to SmackDown, and Luke Harper's fate would not be known just yet because he was out due to a knee injury during the draft, but I will get to Luke Harper in just a little bit. Now, after SummerSlam, Bray Wyatt would then choose his next target being Randy Orton, the boner snake. And they were originally going to be scheduled for one-on-one -on -one match at Backlash, but the match had to be scrapped because... Randy Orton suffered a concussion in his match against Brock at SummerSlam due to the whole elbows to the head issue and blood gushing out, so instead we would get an impromptu no-holds-bar match between Bray Wyatt and Kane at the pay-per-view, and Kane would actually win thanks to interference by Randy Orton. This would actually be Kane's first one-on-one pay-per-view win since WrestleMania 28, so it took a while. Now Bray and Randy would finally face off one-on-one -on -one and No Mercy, where, Ray, where uh, sorry, Bray Wyatt would actually win in No Mercy thanks to the returning Luke Harper interfering in the match. So now the Wyatt family would have Luke Harper, Bray Wyatt, and Eric Rowan. Although I think, well, maybe around this time I think Eric Rowan might have also been injured. Stuff with Eric Rowan was just coming all over the place due to injuries and stuff. Now a couple weeks after No Mercy, Randy Orton would actually surprisingly attack Kane in a match between Kane and Bray Wyatt on SmackDown. And would align himself with the Wyatt family. So another instance of somebody feuding with the Wyatt family only to then out of nowhere join them. Kind of a repetitive pattern here. So this would also initially just set up a full-blown tag team between Randy Orton and Bray Wyatt, and they would be the sole survivors of their team. I believe it was back when we were still doing Team SmackDown versus Team Raw stuff. 
back in 2016 and would win the Survivor Series tag match. And then they would set their sights on the SmackDown Tag Team Championships, at that point being held by Rhino and Heath Slater. I need, I need this job. I have kids. And would end up defeating Rhino and Heath Slater at the TLC pay-per-view for the tag titles, with this being now Bray Wyatt's first ever main roster championship. Now, because they had the whole Wyatt family thing still going on at this point with Harper, Orton, and Bray, you had the whole Freebird rule that was still going into effect, so Orton and Harper would defend the tag team titles a little bit after this, and would lose the tag team titles in a fatal four-way tag team elimination match to the eventual winners, American Alpha, being Jason Jordan and Chad Gable. So because of this tag title loss, we would get dissension start to bubble in the Wyatt family between Eric Rowan and Luke Harper. And after Luke Harper lost a match to Randy Orton on the January 24, 2017 episode of SmackDown, Bray would attack Harper to kick him out of the faction. So now the whole Wyatt family was just left down to Randy Orton and Bray Wyatt. Now the 2017 Royal Rumble comes around. Bray enters Royal Rumble match at number 21 and would finish in third place, the second to last man eliminated, the winner being his tag partner, Randy Orton. Then a big high point would happen the next month. Elimination Chamber, WWE Championship, Bray Wyatt would win the match by last eliminating AJ Styles to win his only WWE Championship. And yes, I mean the only time he won the WWE Championship, saying, I've got the whole world in my hands. But there was a problem here. Randy Orton was the number one contender for the WWE Championship, and it seemed like Randy Orton was willing to give up his title shot because he didn't want to go against his leader. But then after Randy Orton changed his mind and defeated AJ Styles to retain his title shot, he would end up burning the Wyatt family compound to the ground, which included Sister Abigail's grave. So Randy Orton single-handedly manipulated his way into the group, broke up the family, and just destroyed everything Bray knew and loved. So this would set up a match for WrestleMania 33, and Randy would win to become WWE Champion in a match that most people just simply remember because of the whole projections that were there in the middle of the ring with maggots and bugs and all that stuff. Yeah, not fun when your match is only remembered because of spooky stuff there. Well, then you get to Payback, where everything really got screwed up. Right before Payback, uh, Bray Wyatt would get switched over to Monday Night Raw as part of his Superstar Shakeup, which would take effect after Payback. And originally, these two were scheduled to have a standard one-on-one -on -one match for the WWE Championship at Payback as a championship rematch. But then after a couple of booking changes, it became a non-title House of Horrors match. For those who don't remember what House of Horrors match was, both men would compete in a spooky house. So this would be a full-blown cinema cinematic match. And then both men would have to return to the ring in the arena, so getting back in a limo, and finish the match inside the ring. Bray would get the victory here, but that was because Jinder Mahal got involved, and Jinder was the new number one contender to the WWE Championship. So Bray got his victory back over Bray, or over Randy Orton, but it was an non-title match because he never got his contractually obligated rematch. Pretty stupid there, am I right? So, after failing to become WWE a number one contender to Brock Lesnar's Universal Championship at Extreme Rules, Bray would set his sights on Seth Rollins. It would also end up defeating him at Great Balls of Fire. Yes, let's please forget about that peer-review name, why don't we? Then after this, he would get into a new feud with with uh, Finn Balor, which would end up lasting a, few paper, a couple of pay-per-views. So both men would square off at SummerSlam. Finn would win there under his demon persona. Then, Finn would go against one-on-one -on -one against Bray and No Mercy in his human form. 
and would still defeat Bray Wyatt, even after getting attacked before the match and almost getting assisted by paramedics to the back. Then these two were supposed to be set at the TLC pay-per-view with their own personas going against each other. Bray Wyatt's supposed to portray Sister Abigail and Finn Balor look like the pumpkin king of ghosts from Yu-Gi-Oh! Looking like they were going to go on and want a uh, TLC, but the match had to be completely scrapped because Bray would contract meningitis along with Roman Reigns, so Bray would have to be on the shelf for a little bit, and Finn would end up just going one-on-one -on -one against AJ Styles. So this would also cut the feud completely short because we never got the conclusion here. Well, then after this, another feud you probably remember was Bray Wyatt going up against Matt Hardy. As this would start to transition Matt into Woken Matt Hardy because in real life, Matt regained ownership of his broken persona. So they kind of took a watered-down spin off of it. So Bray would cause this side to f come out from Matt. Would defeat him on the Raw's 25th anniversary show, which happened in the... Manhattan Center, I believe it was. I can't remember the exact name of the building. My apologies. Where Rob first made its debut. And he would also later on fail to win the Royal Rumble match. And both men would also have a one-on-one -on -one match at the Elimination Chamber, which Matt won. So then afterwards, Matt Hardy would defeat Bray Wyatt in the Ultimate Deletion match on the March 19, 2018 episode of Raw. It would send Wyatt into the Lake of Reincarnation to temporarily write him off television. Then we would not see Wyatt return to television until WrestleMania 34. As he got involved in the Andre the Giant Memorial Battle Royal to help Matt Hardy win, turning him babyface to finally have a proper babyface run, and forming a tag team between both men known as the Deleter of Worlds. This team would actually be pretty successful, because these men would end up becoming Raw Tag Team Champions in Saudi Arabia at the greatest Raw Rumble show in April, but the reign would end up lasting three months as they would lose them to the B-Team, being Bo Dallas and Curtis Axel at Extreme Rules. And sadly, this team would disband shortly thereafter due to Matt Hardy suffering from injuries. And Wyatt would not be seen for the rest of the year. He would not be seen until his eventual return in April of 2019 when we saw the debut of the Firefly Funhouse segments on Raw. And his character on this whole segment, these segments went up being similar to Mr. Rogers. And we would stare to see these puppets that have significant references. Mercy the Buzzard being referenced to the Malin Mercy, or Waylon Mercy, who would help inspire the original Bray Wyatt character. You have Abby the Witch, Ramblin' Rabbit, and Huskus the Pig Boy, who was kind of a knock over the Husky Harris character that Rotunda portrayed back in 2010 to 2011. Huh, huh, Huskus the Pig, oink, oink. Now, as the segments continued, we start to see the debut of his darker persona, The Fiend. And as The Fiend was starting to get more airtime, you would see him attack Legends and would start to adopt the Mandible Claw as a new finisher. And what was his first feud to set his sights on, like under The Fiend persona? Finn Balor. So it seemed like The Fiend's character's motivation was to go after these characters that did him wrong in the past. So reigniting feuds and wanting to hurt those that hurt him in order to heal himself. SummerSlam rolls around. The Fiend defeats Finn Balor. Pretty convincing fashion. We would get a new entrance there with the different lantern, this different look, and updated music. Kind of a uh, spin-off of his original Can Ye Fly type of music there. But then was when the company started to jumble with the booking. Because then he would quickly set his sights on Seth Rollins and the Universal Championship. They would get their match at Hell in a Cell that would be ruled a no contest after the referee, after the referee threw the match out. Because it was deemed that Seth went too far. 
with his assault on The Fiend, so... Yeah, one of the worst book matches of all time. And plus, it didn't do Seth any favors. He was constantly doing the curb stomp to The Fiend. He got, like, mostly one counts for when the referee was going for the pin. And, like, one near fall, and that was it. I mean, I get it. They were trying to sell this and, like, tell the story almost like a horror movie. But it's just, like, it did not do Seth Rollins' curb stomp any favors. And the finish was just absolutely garbage because this is hell in a cell. This was a match that Mick Foley continued despite suffering serious injuries in his match almost almost tw a little over 20 years prior against The Undertaker. But yet the referee is concerned about this guy, this fiend character that is easily getting up and acting like nothing's going on wrong with him. And yet all of a sudden he's concerned after uses of sledgehammers and toolboxes and ladders and stuff. And then post-match, the fiend sprung up and locked the mandible claw on Seth Rollins anyway. But it's just like nothing salvaged this match. This was just booking gone wrong. Well, then at least the Fiend was able to redeem himself in a false kind of anywhere match that the next mat their mat next match together at Crown Jewel, where the Fiend would win and become the Universal Championship with him over to SmackDown because during this time the Fiend would get drafted to SmackDown, so the Universal Championship would get brought to the Blue Brand and Raw would gain the WWE Championship. And during this time the Universal Championship would get two different designs. The strap of the original Universal Championship would be changed from red to blue to signal the new brand, and the Fiend himself would get his own custom belt design with his face on there. Spooky. So now, what was the Fiend's next feud? Daniel would be against Daniel Bryan. And they would start to bring up the fact that Daniel Bryan betrayed him and the Wyatt family back in 2014. So, like, sorry, Daniel Bryan with the whole get up and being with the Wyatt family being sad and all that stuff. So, The Fiend wanted revenge. Survivor Series rolled around. The Fiend would defeat Bray Wyatt, or Randy Orton, or ah, Daniel Bryan to retain the Universal Championship over him at Survivor Series. And then after this, Daniel Bryan would disappear from television because The Fiend would incapacitate him by tearing him down through the ring with the minimal claw and ripping his hair out. So, get ready, get ready for this part. Now, TLC... Bray Wyatt, under his Firefly Funhouse persona, hi kids, would defeat The Miz. Non-title feud going to TLC, and then after the match, Daniel Bryan would make his return with a shorter haircut and trimmed beard by attacking Bray Wyatt. So Daniel Bryan would revert back to a look that he had around when he debuted in WWE in 2010. So this feud would continue, but this, but the Fiend would come back for this one, as both men would compete at the Royal Rumble pay-per-view. And Bray, or The Fiend would retain the Universal Championship in a strap match against Daniel Bryan to put this all to rest. Then, become, then comes one of the dumbest booking decisions that they did to Bray Wyatt. Super Showdown in February for the Universal Championship in Saudi Arabia. The last pair of you to have him before the pandemic, Goldberg would declare himself the number one contender for whatever reason against The Fiend. And Goldberg would steamroll through The Fiend to easily become Universal Champion. Seth Rollins had a hard time even being able to keep The Fiend down for even a two count by delivering over a dozen curb stomps inside Hell in a Cell. Yet Goldberg made mincemeat over this Fiend character. This definitely destroyed the mystique of this brand new hot character. I know this character had been around for a few months by this point, but this character had mystique and was white hot during this period, and yet you had Goldberg easily steamroll through him. 
He also did not make Seth Rollins look good in comparison, because again, like I just said, Seth couldn't beat The Fiend despite curb stomping him into oblivion. But yet Goldberg made easy work out of The Fiend within just the course of a quick period of time. Stupid. The Fiend would end up brushing this off because then he would target John Cena in the build to WrestleMania 36. And we would get a Firefly Funhouse match. And this was actually creatively a great thing to see. Because The Fiend slash Bray Wyatt wanted revenge over what happened six years prior at WrestleMania 30. And he decided to show John Cena what it was like if he was in an alternative timeline by visiting these different tropes, like being involved in wrestling, with wrestling back with the Blue Bar Steel Cage, and how stuff was back in the 80s, Saturday Night's main event. What would happen if he was part of the NWO? And make him relive certain moments of his career, like when he debuted, kind of throwing Nikki Bella in his face. Make him revert back to his Doctor of Thugonomics character. So Cena would have to relive his past and all these different moments if there was a different timeline, but The Fiend would still get the victory anyway by taking down Cena and getting the pin, and then afterwards Cena would just disappear. We would not see Cena again for a while after this. So The Fiend got his redemption over John Cena. So now that this was over, Bray would set his sights on his former wife family cohort, Braun Strowman, in the Universal Championship. Both men would collide at Money in the Bank, where Braun would retain the Universal Championship over Wyatt, who was under his Firefly Funhouse persona. Then you get to the horror show at Extreme Rules. A white swamp fight, where Bray would bring back his Eater of Worlds persona for this. And Wyatt would get the victory over Strowman here, but of course, this was non-title. Then you continue this feud, and Alexa Bliss would get brought in. Being used as a pawn, being used against Braun Strowman, who... And Storyline had a bit of an affection for Alexa Bliss, going back to their time when they were teaming together as part of the Mixed Tag Team Challenge. So, Alexa would get involved in all this, and both men and would finally help give wife Bray Wyatt his match against Braun Strowman at, uh, Summer, uh, at SummerSlam for the Universal Championship, and The Fiend would defeat Strowman to become Universal Champion. Post-match, though, Roman, Lee, Roman Reigns would return. And this would be the beginning of the heel run for Roman Reigns, who would attack both Strowman and Bray Wyatt slash The Fiend after the match, and would declare himself to be a new number one contender to the Universal Championship. And we may or may not remember this, but the next week, we would after SummerSlam, we would already get payback. This one up being a bit being a triple threat match between The Fiend, Braun Strowman, and Roman Reigns for the Universal Championship, and Roman would win by pinning Braun Strowman after. The ring was already destroyed because The Fiend and Braun did a superplex to wreck the ring, so unfortunately Bray Wyatt's run as Universal Champion and his final run as Universal Champion would only last a week. Just felt pointless. Now, after payback, The Fiend and Alexa Bliss would form an alliance as Alexa would start to have more of a dark, sinister character for herself, being spooky, dressing up with dresses and swinging on swings and even taking part in the Firefly Funhouse segments herself which I heard Alexa Bliss say that she absolutely loved and had a lot of fun with. Now, The Fiend, after this, would ignite, reignite his feud with Randy Orton after being drafted over to Raw in twenty the part of the 2020 draft, so time to get revenge over what happened in 2017. So both men would have the Firefly Infernal match at TLC in 2020 in the Thunderdome. Typical Infernal match, except this time, instead of the Infernal match being 
stuck inside the ring with fire surrounding the ring. He also had stuff that was lit on fire in the crowd and in the aisleway and everything. So he had more room to fight. Bray Wyatt would end up losing to Randy Orton after getting his jacket, the Fiend got his jacket lit on fire. And would eat an RKO while still being lit on fire. And post-match, the Fiend would get out of some gasoline and set ablaze in the ring. And yeah, we know there were camera cuts. You weren't going to actually light the real man himself, Bray Wyatt, on fire. They set a dummy up and the clothes on fire and everything. So it seemed like Randy Orton got rid of the Fiend. But then a few months later at Fastlane, the Fiend would return with his new burned look to help help Alexa Bliss defeat Randy Orton in their intergender match at Fastlane. So now we got to burn Fiend back from the dead. You can't kill him. But then you would get something more baffling. Because during The Fiend's entrance at WrestleMania 37, he would trans magically transition away from his burnt look to his regular look like nothing happened. So he'd go from dark and burnt and spooky to just being more spooky. So they would have the match at WrestleMania 37, and Randy Orton would win after Alexa Bliss peered out of a box there in the aisleway with black goo dripping out of her head in a different look and being enough of a distraction to cost The Fiend his match against Randy Orton. Another terribly booked match. And after this, Alexa would claim that her reason was because she had no use for Bray Wyatt, and Bray, during the stint, would have one more Firefly Funhouse segment, saying he's ready for a fresh start after taking some time away. But unfortunately, this whole storyline would never have a proper conclusion because during Bray Wyatt's time away from WWE television after this, he would be released from his contract on July 31st, 2021. In a very very shocking decision. After being away from WWE for over a year, we would see cryptic vignettes air on WWE television to advertise the return of Bray Wyatt. So after the main event at Extreme Rules between Seth Rollins, I believe it was Seth Rollins and Matt Riddle, we would see the lights go out in the arena, familiar puppets and uh, character outfits appearing in the crowd, because we would finally see the return of Bray Wyatt. Because the door would appear there on the stage, swing wide open, man with a mask and a lantern would emerge through it, take the mask off, Bray's home. Massive pop from the audience. One of the best just overall returns in the crowd reactions to return ever. It was amazing. And you, of course, get an emotional promo cut by Bray Wyatt shortly after this on SmackDown, thanking the crowd for giving him a purpose, reminding, like, making him never feel forgotten. But then we would, it would also see the debut of the Uncle Howdy character. Now, I know that it's been established, like, behind the scenes of who was behind this character. It was Bo Dallas, but we never got an on-screen official confirmation as to who Uncle Howdy was. But the feud that Bray would next embark in would be against L.A. Knight, yeah, in the build to the Royal Rumble. And during the build, we'd also see the return of the Firefly Funhouse segments. And why would also attack LA Knight on the 30th anniversary of Raw, aka Raw's XXX, not the kind you guys are thinking of, after Undertaker returned under his American Badass persona and confronted LA Knight, so Bray would get involved, knock uh, LA Knight down with his sister Abigail, and kind of have a passing of the torch moment with the Undertaker. So now we would get to the Royal Rumble. Pitch black match between both men at an advertised match from Houndu, which was essentially an anything goals match. With the entire inside of the arena being taken down, taken dimly with a black light. And Bray Wyatt, with paint all over his body, would defeat LA Knight in their one on one encounter. 
Post-match, Wei would continue his attack on Knight into the crowd, and Uncle Howdy would also get involved in the physicality by jumping off a high elevated platform to LA Knight, causing an explosion, and some of the puppets from the Firefly Funhouse segments would appear on that same platform just watching and laughing. And little did we know, this would be Bray Wyatt's final televised match of his life. And himself and Bray Wyatt, or LA Knight, would have matches together on the house show loop. I believe they were having more pitch black matches. But this would be Bray Wyatt's only televised one-on-one -on -one match of this run of his WWE career. And like I said, it would be the final match we would see of him on television. Now, after the Elimination Chamber event, Bray would set his sights on Bobby Lashley in what was going to be billed as a match for WrestleMania 39. However, after just one vignette that aired showing Bray under his muscle workout type of vignettes, the feud would just suddenly be dropped because Bray Wyatt would disappear from television due to a mysterious illness that we were not aware of. This whole feud would be scrapped, and Bobby Lashley would instead take part in the Andre the Giant Memorial Battle Royal at the pay-per-view. And unfortunately, we would not really get any full news on Bray Wyatt until it was revealed that after he passed away, unfortunately, on August 24, 2023, that his disappearance was caused due to him contracting COVID. And during his time away, it would the illness would exacerbate a heart condition that he had. It was either a pre-existing one or one caused by COVID, one of the two. And after, despite it seeming like he was on the road to recovering, getting ready for a return, on August 24, 2023, Wyndham Rotunda would suffer a fatal heart attack at the age of 36. This, uh, this just blew, this blew us all away. I think, like, I know Terry Funk passed away the day prior, but I think I, I'm more taken aback by Bray Wyatt when the Rotunda is passing more because, just like all of us, I'm more familiar with Wyndham Rotunda's wrestling career compared to Terry Funk, because we all saw Wyndham Rotunda, Bray Wyatt's WWE career before our eyes in life in real time here. We watched this man's character development. We saw him on television. We watched him have these matches and cut these promos and have these feuds and captivate us. This man had the probably the best character work I've ever seen in professional wrestling because this man evolved with his character. He had these different motivations and promos, and you look at all these feuds and his reasons for going after these people. And everything being cryptic and catching your attention every single time. You never forgot this man. You never forgot his feuds. You never missed his presence. This man caught your attention with every single thing he said and did. But we saw this man grow. We saw this man be a creative genius. This man had a presence like no other. And it's a massive shame. This man was only 36 years old. Who knows what else we could have seen? We all envisioned what it would have been like if he faced Bobby Lashley. We thought what could have happened if he brought back maybe the Fiend character to go against Roman Reigns and try to go for the Universal Championship if it was an option. We imagined what it could have been like if he had a Firefly Funhouse match against Cody Rhodes and make Cody confront his past. But unfortunately, and maybe figure out the mystery behind Sister Abigail and the true identity by uncle, behind Uncle Howdy. But unfortunately, we're never going to get that. And to Wyndham Rotunda, I want to personally say thank you to everything you've given the business. You are a man that I can easily say was never given justice in WWE because this man's booking was all over the place. 
in WWE. I think we can all pretty much agree with that because sometimes he's booked strongly and sometimes they book him to the point where you make the, you question the company as to why they would do this. Like I said, like with the booking of The Fiend. One moment he's insanely strong and the next thing you know he gets bulldozed by Goldberg. This man honestly was underutilized by the company. But I mean like this man was a creative genius. His character work like I said is probably the best out of everybody who had evolving characters in WWE. This man definitely deserves all the praise that he gets. He's got nothing but an outpouring of love and support by everybody that knew him and worked with him in the wrestling business. Like I said, it's a massive shame this man was only 36. He had so much more to give to professional wrestling. This man was born into this business. And who knows when he's going to get inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame. But I mean, it's going to be rightfully deserved when he does get inducted one day. And he deserves all, like I said, all the praise and recognition that he gets for his career. And his innovation. His character work. And his creative mind. So, I would grade this career run, but you know what? I want... I, I was debating whether to make it like a career review like I did with some other career reviews that I've done so far. Or just use this as a way to look back at his career and pay respect and give personal thoughts and everything. And I figured the latter would be the better option. So, I'm going to cut it here, folks. Let me know what you all thought in the comment section below. What did you think about Wyndham Rotunda and his entire time in WWE during this 14-year run? Let me know what you thought of his time as Husky Harris, what you thought of his time in developmental if you've seen him, and also his time as Bray Wyatt, The Fiend, The Firefly Funhouse, Persona, and all this stuff. Let me know you all thought in the comment section below, and I will hopefully also cover his FCW stuff, because at some point I will plan on covering the time with Florida Championship Wrestling back when they had their own TV show, so I'll hopefully get to that as time goes along. So anyway, let me know you all thought in the comment section below. If you enjoyed today's episode, please remember, leave a like, subscribe to the bell, turn on if you're listening to this on YouTube, or follow if you're listening to this podcast on any other service that this podcast is available on. I hope to catch you all in the next episode. And rest in peace, Wyndham Rotunda, a.k.a. Bray Wyatt. Thank you for the memories. Thanks for watching, folks. Like, comment, subscribe. Peace out, and good day, everybody.